This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Election version. Mark, what the hell? The, the big question is, what the hell happened to the big red wave? Exactly. <laughs> it did not wet, materialize. Big, big red dribble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a big red wave, a tsunami, a hurricane, and it ended up being just a little rainy day. It was not a red wave by any stretch of the imagination. We're looking in the house like it could be as little as a one-seat majority, maybe four or five-seat majority, and in the Senate— Still possible that the Republicans could eke out a one-vote majority, but it's possible that this may be a 50-50 Senate. It's possible that this may come down, can you believe it, to Georgia special election again. Deja vu all over again. Exactly. I'm looking at the top of real clear politics. So, you know, as we speak, so things might get clarified in the next 24 hours. But right now we've got in the U.S. Senate a Democratic win and a Republican loss of one. And in the House, we've got minus eight for the Democrats, plus eight for the Republicans. And governors, we've got plus two for the Democrats and minus two for the Republicans. I think one of the things we've learned is how important those state houses are. You know, whether it's redistricting or it's just governing experience, governors tend to be really important. And Republicans have really dominated those races and been serious down ballot. Not this time, baby. No, not this time. Look, I'm looking at this with, you know, now we're now about 24 hours afterwards, and I'm looking at it from this perspective. I think the voters did the Republican Party a favor, and in three ways. First of all, they reelected Ron DeSantis in Florida and not only reelected him, but by 20 points. Florida is now no longer a purple state. It is a red state. And they've shown us in Florida the path out of the political wilderness for the Republican Party. Second favor they did us and the country. They gave us, however narrow, a even a one vote majority in the House means the miasma of spending is over. They have revoked Joe Biden's ability to pass trillions of dollars in spending with just Democratic votes alone. So the march of socialism has been stopped, at least for the moment. But the third thing they did is they gave the Republican Party a wake-up call, which is that if you put people on the ballot who are weak candidates, extreme, who don't appeal to the Republican Party, a Republican base, and to swing voters, and whose only qualification for office is their fealty to Donald Trump, you're going to lose. We've got two years now, Republicans do, to absorb and respond to this lesson that the voters have given us, which is that the American people were looking for a viable, palatable alternative to Joe Biden and the Democrats, and Republicans didn't offer one, and so they they didn't vote for them. And it's going to happen again in two years if Republicans don't figure that out. Right. And so that's the question. Donald Trump has won one election. Okay, He's lost a presidential. He's lost us the Senate once and potentially twice in a row. And the only thing that I see as the silver lining of Trump's behavior since the election is that he is doing a nice job distinguishing himself from Ron DeSantis. Because, you know, people like our friend Liz Cheney have said, no, you know, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, same guy. 
Yeah. And, and Donald Trump's saying, oh, no, we're not the same guy. <laughs> and DeSantis is just sitting there and yeah, watching. Right. <laughs> so, you know, again, I think you can see silver linings. I really agree with you wholeheartedly. Sometimes you like to see people get a comeuppance. And this is a real comeuppance. You know, on the one hand, I remember because I had this conversation years ago with John McCain. And he looked at me and said, Danny. Winning is always better than losing. <laughs> and that's true. On the other hand, I think that the silver lining of this loss is exactly what you suggested. The slap in the face to Republicans who somehow believed that they could coast to victory on Joe Biden's unpopularity, right, and on criticism of Joe Biden. In other words, taking advantage of people's pain in their pocketbook, but without offering concrete suggestions with a whole bunch of candidates whose one criterion for their position at the head of the ticket for the Republican Party was that they thought that the election in 2020 was stolen. I just want to lay out the severity of, of that lesson. So on Joe Biden's watch, we've got the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst collapse in real wages in four decades, the worst murder rate since 1996, the worst border crisis in American history, highest gas prices ever recorded, the worst increase in grocery prices since 1979, the worst rise in the cost of shelter since 1984, the worst labor shortage in American history, which is fueling inflation and all the supply chain issues and the reason why when you go to a restaurant, they can't seat you because there's nobody there to work. And, and all the rest of it. And still lost. He's, but wait, there's more. <laughs> He's, he is the least popular president in the history of presidential polling, except Donald Trump. Going back to Harry Truman, Fox News voter analysis, six in 10 voters say he does not have the mental capacity to be president of the United States. And yet, and yet we didn't lose because we've still got the majority in the House and we still could have the majority in the Senate. That blunted the entire red wave. Why is that? It's because the voters looked at the alternative that the Republican Party offered and said, no, thanks, in dozens of races around the country. And they sent us a message, which is, did you not hear us in the last election? We don't want Donald Trump. They're not against Trumpism, because look at what Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis's policies are very Trumpist in many, many ways in terms of the substance of the policy. It wasn't Trumpism they rejected in 2020. It was Donald Trump. And Donald Trump injected himself into these races made sure that his handpicked candidates, whose fealty to him was the only factor that was the deciding factor in, in whether he endorsed people or not, and voters just rejected them. And they said, no, I'll take the guy who is mentally unfit. Yes. I'll, I'll take the stroke victim. Yeah, I'll over, stroke victim, exactly. <laughs> I will take the stroke victim over that guy. And that, to me, is just, you know, again, it is a very clear message, and it should be a wake-up call. My biggest fear is that it won't be a wake-up call. Because at the end of the day, Donald Trump doesn't give a damn about Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona or Nevada or New Hampshire or any of those states where he theoretically had a candidate who was his hand-picked, hand-groomed person, perhaps less in Nevada. But he doesn't care about those states. He cares about Donald Trump. He wants the headlines. He wants, and, and I think you were repeating a conversation to me that was really interesting. He likes the grifters around him who tell him, yeah, you go. Well, here's the thing. I mean, that's exactly right. So it is not in Donald Trump's interest to run again for president. Right. It just isn't. He, he, he can go to his grave having claimed that he, the election was stolen from him. 
But if he runs again and loses, which I think he will, absolutely, then then he's a loser. And I think it, he's already which a is, loser. Which but is that's the, just which me. is the he can't even deny that he is. And that is the one thing that he hates more than anything. And so why would you run if you're him? It's because all the normal people have left his orbit, and he's surrounded by a bunch of grifters who he's their meal ticket. Their gravy train, their entire financial future depends on convincing him to run again and making money off of that for that presidential run. And they're so cheap and they're so desperate to get that cash in their pockets that he raised one hundred and sixty one million dollars during this election cycle. You know how much he spent on the Senate candidates that he nominated that he whose nominations he secured about fourteen million dollars. Because they weren't going to give up the gravy train. They want that They want that money for themselves because the 2024 run is going to be their, their gravy train, and that's the cash that's going to line their pockets. So somebody's got to get to Trump and make the point to him that these people are using you, that, you're, that this is not in your interest to run again. And I don't know who can deliver that message to him and get the word out to him, but somebody's people, got people to. People with money. That's yeah. who he respects. At the end of the day, he has the typical mentality of somebody who you know who believes that everyone who isn't rich is somehow lesser people who are rich republican party donors people who backed him up to now people like ken griffiths who has finally defected from the trump team can tell him and maybe god willing maybe he'll listen but i want to see that column from you about what a sucker trump made of all the people who donated to him thinking he was going to back candidates because he it. has taken that money from him. Say it again. I wrote that column. Say it again and again and again, and we'll link it here. So we've got, we're lucky because, you know, Washington on two days after an election is not an easy time to talk to to people who are everybody's recovering everybody exactly (laughs) everybody's got a political hangover but we were lucky enough to persuade josh krashauer to join us josh has been with us before he really is one of i think washington's best political analysts he's a senior political correspondent at axios before that he was the editor-in-chief of the hotline which all of us read every single day he had a a column for them called against the grain he was a co-author of the almanac of american politics in other words he knows this business well. I'll tell you a funny anecdote before we introduce him, which I was in the I was with Josh in the box in the for the election coverage. And the way they work it is, you know, they've got a table with a bunch of panelists and they 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 rotate us in and out like there's a commercial break. They pull me. They put Josh on, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I when one of the times when I was on back on the bench and he was on the on the floor, he was talking and people in the room were saying, gosh, that guy is so smart. and it's true we've got him here for you best kind of compliment you can receive from your peers here's our interview josh welcome back to the podcast hey great to be back with you guys we're so happy to have you you and i were up till about uh, two in the morning doing election coverage with fox have you recovered yet yeah you know you, you you go on coffee and adrenaline and i just you know, this is like the Super Bowl election night. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, exciting to, to watch the returns come in, break everything down. But I, I was up to like five, six in the morning and got a couple hours in and uh, then crashed pretty, pretty hard uh, the next day. There you go. Well, unlike other Super Bowls, the home team didn't do as well as expected. <laughs> so what happened with the red wave? What happened? Yeah. Well, I, I think we learned that candidates matter, that, um, you know, what, what we saw in September, you know, there were after those special elections in New York and in some of these other states that showed abortion was a much more resonant issue that questioned though for some of these candidates that Republicans nominated, especially on the Senate side, the governor's race side, 
you know, I think that, that, that was sort of what we ended up seeing on election night. Now, there was a lot of uh, bullish polling in the final couple of weeks. I, I wrote a lot about the money that was being spent in blue parts of the country, in New England, on the West Coast, in these House races. The Republicans certainly were, were optimistic that a lot of these undecided voters, these independent voters, would, would break against the party in power, just, just as they usually do in midterm elections when the economy is, is facing the, the, the headwinds that it is, and with crime you know, on the rise. But I think what we saw, is, and what made it unusual and a little bit, bit surprising to me, is that the independent voters actually broke pretty evenly. Uh, in fact, if you look at both both the Fox exit poll and, and, and the Edison exit poll, uh, they actually slightly favor the Democrats uh, in, in the end. And that, that, that is a, a surprise. And it's a sign that um, there is a real hesitation about the uh, what the Republican Party stands for, its associations with, with former President Donald Trump, and then some of these candidates that were, frankly, very well to the extreme of where your, your average uh, voter was, despite the problems they had with the economy, despite the, the challenges they had with quality of life issues. So I think what is interesting to me is not that candidates who sucked lost, if I can put it in the poli-sci way. (laughs) (laughs) The technical term. (laughs) Exactly. What's surprising to me is that a lot of normal Republicans, I mean, Laxalt in Nevada is what I think of as an old school GOP candidate. He's not Trumpy. He's not what's called an election denier. He's not an extremist by any standard. And he comes from a venerable, you know, old school Republican family. And yet he is barely hanging on. Ditto, by the way, in the House. I mean, again, not all of the Republicans were Trumpy or MAGA or whatever it is that we call them now. And yet, unprecedented lack of performance on the part of the opposition party. Were they just dragged down by the rest of the losers? Well, uh, yeah, yes. I, I think when you have a lot of high-profile figures uh, that get all, all the time on cable news that dominate Kevin McCarthy's mindshare when it comes to you know managing the Republican caucus in the House, and Mitch McConnell's feud with Rick Scott in the public, public eye, yeah, like the, the most prominent figures end up affecting the, the Republican brand and none, none more so than Donald Trump. So I, I, I do think that the, that the party brand um, is, is affected. I mean, and even Adam Laxalt, who I thought was a pretty good candidate running with the support of both Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump engaged in some of this election denialism in the aftermath of the 2020 election. So, you know, I thought he was, you know, we'll see what happens in Nevada. I think it's still a lot, a lot of vote left to count, but he, he was one of the better of the Republican Senate nominees this cycle. But, you know, I think, Compared to past cycles, I wouldn't put him at the top of the of the candidate recruitment list. He was someone who, you know, was, was successful largely because he was able to bridge the divide between the the Trump and the McConnell wing of the party. Um, look, I, I I think that in in our nationalized partisan times, who who are the leaders who gets the most face time? That stuff matters. You saw in the exit polls, almost equal number of voters thought the Republican Party was too extreme, and that the Democratic Party was also too extreme. And the candidates that really succeeded were uh, the moderates on both sides. I mean, Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke got, got crushed, and, and they were running to the left of, of their respective states. Uh, there was a or- the Oregon race I was watching really closely where a progressive unseated a moderate, and she looks like she'll, she'll, she's going to lose in, in, in an otherwise good, good year for the, for the Democratic Party. I mean, New York is a cautionary tale for, for Democrats because uh, that, that's a state where crime was a major issue, and you had Democrats starting from the top of, of their ticket, ignoring the, the top issue for voters. And Zeldin came within five points, and, and uh, Democrats lost four seats, including 
uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, Congressional Campaign Committee Chairman. So, you know, I think, and I think the lesson of Long this, Island, too, for the first time in the, years, right? Hudson Valley, Long Island, I think upstate there's a seat that Republicans are going to win. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the lesson is extremism doesn't sell. Uh, two, two of the most successful Democratic candidates on the ballot, by the way, uh, Josh Shapiro in, in Pennsylvania, winning about 56 percent of the vote, running. I, th- I think he got more votes than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which is pretty impressive for a, a midterm election. And it's a sign that this is a guy who you know ran to the middle on education, ran to the middle on, on, on the issue of crime, um, you know, was pretty reliably liberal on abortion and, and, and said the same things that Biden did about democracy and the health of democracy. But but focused on a few issues where he distanced, distanced himself from the National Party. Uh, Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, 57% of the vote in what used to be a pretty pretty competitive state, uh, you know, he, he, he broke with his party on COVID rules and COVID regulations and had a pretty pretty darn big coalition. Henry Cuellar in Texas, you know, that we were looking at those Rio Grande Valley districts that Democrats actually did fairly well in. They won two of those three, but it was the moderates that won. It was Gonzalez and, and, and certainly Cuellar who has broken with his party on abortion and, and a whole lot of border security issues. So moderation sells. And uh, I think Democrats did better than expected because they happened to be running against in many of these key races, Republican candidates well to the right of where, where the electorate was. So let's talk about the impact of abortion on the race, because it, there's a lot of conflicting data. So one of the things that I found very interesting was that in the Fox News voter analysis that abortion was the second issue most important issue to voters behind the economy and inflation. So it obviously beat out crime, it beat out immigration, it beat out a lot of issues nationally. But at the same time, you've got all the governors, incumbent governors, who signed abortion restrictions into law in Georgia, in Ohio, in New Hampshire, in Texas, in Florida, all won overwhelmingly. So you would think they would be the first ones to pay a price if people were voting on abortion because they literally signed the restrictions. And also the Fox voter analysis shows that Republicans made gains with women in this election. That in 2018, four years ago, the women's vote went 60-40 to Democrats. This year it went 50-50. So Republicans gained 10 points among women. So untangle all of that. And and yet another factoid to add to this, which is uh, in Kentucky, which I consider a deep red state, Right, a pro-life amendment to the state constitution went down. Yeah. Right. So there's another bit of abortion evidence, you know, contrary to some of the other straws in the wind. I mean, there's data going in all different directions here. Un- untangle it for us. Yeah. So I think the the, the real story is a little nuanced in that. I, and my my initial instinct after Roe v. Wade was was overturned was that the the, the political reaction would be very state dependent and and and. Democrats would make the most inroads on that issue in states where the policy was you know, on the line, where you would see significant changes in abortion rights in, in those states that, that, that had a referendum on the ballot or, you know, if, if a Republican governor got elected, they'd be able to make some pretty significant changes to state law. And, you know, I think that's what we saw on, on, on election night in Michigan. Um, you had a referendum uh, securing abortion rights in, in the state, which passed pretty comfortably. And led to a Democratic sweep, not just of the governorship, but also of the big swing races for the House and also in the state legislature, which could go Democratic. The Democrats may have full control of Michigan government for the first time in a long while. Uh, that, and, and the exit polls, at least, at least the Edison poll, seemed to show that abortion actually trumped the economy in Michigan, just in Michigan, which is interesting. Pennsylvania is another example where you know, I, don't, I don't think anyone thought Doug Mastriano was going to win. But look, if you had a Republican governor... 
in a Republican state legislature, they would have rolled back abortion rights. And I think that propelled a lot of voters, especially in the, in the Philadelphia suburbs, to ultimately vote not just for Shapiro, but probably helped John Fetterman a lot in, in the Senate race, too. So Wisconsin's another example. Like that abortion rights would have changed if you elected a Republican governor. And it was a split ticket decision in Wisconsin. Mandela Barnes lost to Ron Johnson, but in the governor's race, uh, Tony Evers ran quite a bit ahead of that, of that Senate race. Um, and that's, that's, that's where he, he's the, he's the, he's the guy who can put a check on the Republican desires to pass pro-life legislation. But I think it's true on the opposite side too, Mark, because, you know, Florida, like you said, Governor DeSantis, Governor Kemp, stalwart pro-life governors. And, you know, I look, I think a lot of people have adjusted to, to, to the, to the laws, the 15 week law in Florida, the six week law, I believe in Georgia. And, you know, that status quo bias. I don't think they, I think ultimately, uh, the, the, the laws were not as controversial as they were when they first passed. And, and I think people have accepted them. So it, it, I think it really came down to the states, these Midwestern states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where a lot of voters, a lot of women especially, thought the, the policy was on the line. And they were not just voting for candidates, but they were also voting as a referendum on their position on abortion rights. So you're going to see a theme emerge from Trump, I think, and some of the MAGA forces who are going to be saying, this wasn't Trump that cost us the red wave. It was abortion. It was the Supreme Court. Do you think that's a legitimate argument? Um, I, you know, I think I think that there are always multiple factors um, in, in these races. I, I, I do think that the candidate quality issue was one that was clear in the Senate races. Um, I think if you know Chris Sununu didn't run in New Hampshire because he didn't want to, have to deal with the headache of dealing with Trump in a primary, Doug Ducey the same in in Arizona. I think it's pretty clear, and at least have, in Arizona. And Republicans would have the Senate right now if both of them had run. That would be the difference. That would be the difference <laughs> in the Senate majority. So so that that's it right there. So that that's candidate quality right so there. Maybe it's an issue where, you know, if the races weren't so close because of weak candidates, then abortion wouldn't have been a tipping point in some of them. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you had better candidates, the, the abortion issue would have mitigated Republican gains. But, but look, I, I, I think— uh, again, there were a lot of a lot of Democratic holds or pickups in Michigan. There were a lot of Democratic holds that were surprising to me in Pennsylvania. There were a lot of races where I do think uh, abortion played a role and it helped the Democrats stop stop the red wave. So, bottom line of what I'm hearing is that separating out the issues for a second, you know, that that drove because there were basically a whole series of small headwinds that ended up coming together to really block Republican gains. But what I'm hearing bottom, bottom line is that this is a brand issue. So here's my question. Is that brand going to be recoverable if the party gets rid of Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, look, people have short memories in politics, and ultimately it takes leadership that directs uh, what the party stands for, who who the leaders of the party are are going to be. And we're heading into a presidential year in two years that that ultimately is what we have presidential elections for and presidential nominating processes. Um, To me, like, we're going to start to see a clash between the the Trump vision and and perhaps the, the DeSantis vision of, of the Republican Party. And, you know, DeSantis uh, it w- was a big Republican success story of election night, uh, not just winning, but winning big and, and just winning in, in, in broadening the Republican Party coalition in, in p- parts of the state like Miami-Dade, Osceola County, majority Hispanic counties that had rarely voted uh, Republican for, for some time. 
or hadn't voted Republican in a long while. That is sort of the that is the the, the other path that Republicans could choose. That frankly, there are other Republicans out there. Glenn Youngkin, Mike Pence. Uh, we're going to be hearing a lot of other names. Larry Hogan tossed his hat in the ring this week. Um, the, the challenge, though, for the Republican Party is that they're, they're, the last two years, party leaders basically said we're going to have to live in some kind of coalition with the MAGA forces and the establishment, the traditional Republican conservative forces. And I think after last night's re- or after this week's results, I don't know. I think that there's a there's a need to really have stronger leadership to speak out against sort of the, the problems that Trump caused the party in this midterm election. Because I do think, you know, look, I, maybe Roe v. Wade was a big factor, but in the Senate, like we just talked about, I think it's pretty obvious if, if Trump didn't involve himself as much as he did in these Senate primaries, Republicans probably hold the Senate majority. Exactly. Maybe by one seat, maybe by two seats, but it would have made a big difference. Exactly. And you also have House races, too, where, you know, very good lawmakers, you know, whether it's Cheney or whether it's Anthony Gonzalez in Ohio, Folks who, who did, you know, traditional hardworking lawmakers got booted out of Congress and were replaced by, by less productive members as part of this whole, this whole process. Right. People with big mouths and small agendas. So what is DeSantis's magic? You know, what we're looking at right now, at least in the aftermath with all the recriminations against Trump, is that what was supposed to be a coronation for him, at least in his own mind, ended up really kind of being a coronation for DeSantis. And at least, you know, if the New York Post has any credibility. (laughs) Such a great headline. It was. The future. (laughs) It was great. Good for them. One of the things I've actually respected a lot about DeSantis is he plays his cards close to the vest. He is not a blabbermouth. And he keeps his powder dry for fights. God, that was two just totally awful cliches, one after the other. I apologize. But So what's his magic? Two big things. Uh, Number one... He appreciated the backlash against COVID policies, the excessive mask mandates, school closures. I mean, all that whole bucket of of frustration that Glenn Youngkin, frankly, capitalized on in Virginia in 2021 and DeSantis led on uh, and and even challenged Trump in in certain cases on that front uh, over the last couple of years. And I think, uh, you know, that that was a big theme in the Virginia governor's race. The polling didn't show it, but, but Youngkin clearly won on the, the bucket of COVID frustrations, DeSantis, I think, also capitalized by opening up the state earlier, by prioritizing in-person education for kids. That, that was a big factor in, in, you know, in his governing strategy. And I also think the anti-the wokeness, the, the, you know, crime is, I think, almost part of that wokeness uh, basket as well. But there, there is a, you know, he's clearly led and spoke out in ways that even other Republicans have in, in taking on the excesses. Of, of some of the more woke uh, elements of, of the left. And that, that, that is, you look at the polling, that, that's unequivocally popular, even among some moderate Democrats, in addition to independents and Republicans. And, you know, it helps also that DeSantis is, is a governor. He has a platform. He's able, he, one of the challenges for Republicans is it's harder to, you know, you can say all these things as a challenger, but when you have a governing record, you can point to successes, you can point to the state's economy, you can point to the state's schools being open. It, it gives voters a, you know, a real receipt, a real, a real, real, you know, uh, report card that you actually did what you promised. And that was also, you know, it wasn't just the issues, but it was also the fact that he accomplished things as governor. So talk to us a little bit about the details of his win. Like, you know, I mean, he won Miami Dade, which, which is just unbelievable for a Republican. Josh governor. also mentioned Osceola. Yeah. Yeah. Osceola was even, an even bigger surprise for me. So Miami Dade, that's the Cuban American population. That's all, the Cuban American vote has always been more Republican than, than, than the other Hispanic vote in the state. But 
boy, Osceola is right outside, you know, Walt Disney World. It's, it's I think, plurality Hispanic, um, working class, Puerto Rican, a lot of Puerto Ricans uh, in Osceola. I, I think, like, Biden, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, this is like a double-digit Democratic county, and it, it's, it's one that, um, it, you know, Republicans never came close throughout <laughs> most of my time covering politics. So uh, DeSantis won that county comfortably. Uh, uh, this week. So, so the message that DeSantis, if he chooses to run for president, has isn't just the fact that he, he, he takes on the Democrats, he takes on the, the left. He, you know, he, it, it's a political message. It's that he's been able to broaden the Republican coalition. He's been able to achieve go, you know, governing successes, but also win over voters, namely Hispanic voters, but but uh, across the board, really, women, suburbanized, the whole, the whole enchilada <laughs> that broadened the Republican coalition and could be a model for the Republican Party. So talk to us about the ticket splitters. In Georgia, about 200,000 people voted for Kemp, but not for Walker. In Ohio, DeWine won by 25 points, whereas J.D. Vance won by seven. Uh, Florida, obviously, DeSantis won by 20, outpaced Rubio. But then in, you had in Pennsylvania, where Mehmet Oz lost, you had uh, you know a really weak gubernatorial candidate at the top of the ticket. How much of an effect did the governors have in helping pull some of these uh, Senate candidates up and not having that in Pennsylvania hurt the Senate candidate? Yeah, I mean, candidates matter, especially in governor's races. Uh, but, but, you know, you had a disconnect in Ohio where J.D. Vance won the Senate race you know, six, seven points, I think, in the end. But DeWine won by a much, comfortable, much more comfortable margin. In New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, uh, he, he probably could have won that Senate race, but he decided to run for re-election for governor, won easily. But Don Baldock lost pretty badly against Maggie Hassan. Um, you know, I actually think some of the governors, I, 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 I do, I've been talking to a lot of folks in Pennsylvania on the Democratic side who think that Shapiro, or really Mastriano, cost Oz the, 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 the Senate race and that, that, that the brand, the turnout dynamic, uh, for Democrats in Pennsylvania, just just favor, Shapiro really brought Fetterman across the finish line um, in in that race. Um, and you had New York. I mean, look on the opposite side. You had New York, uh, where Lee Zeldin didn't win the governor's race, but came within five points and had coattails for all these Republican candidates running on a similar message. Um, so, so the, gov- the, the governor's races in a lot of these states did set the tone for the ticket. Uh, but it was also easy for some of these candidates, like like a Bulldog in particular. To, to blow it, to not not take advantage of the more moderate, more mainstream message at the top of the ticket uh, Republicans were sending. So the question that has been asked, and maybe it's a nerdy Washington question, nonetheless important. So <laughs> the polls, they seem to get it wrong no matter what. Uh, you know, first it was underestimating the Trump surge, and then it was overestimating the Trump surge. What went wrong this time? This is a complicated subject, but I, I actually think that the, the traditional polls, the, the polls that NBC puts out, the Wall Street Journal, the the, 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 the blue chip pollsters did a pretty good job. Um, I think a lot of uh, polling that, frankly, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to <laughs> that gets mixed in the averages in some of these models, you know, like uh, Trafalgar, uh, it, because they had a you know, they had a good night in 2020, they were rated as a top pollster by 538. And I think if you've actually look at their methodology, you know, there are questions among some pollsters that, um, I, you know, I, I kind of rely on the, on, on the most brand name, reliable pollsters. And we, there's a proliferation of pollsters that just frankly aren't, aren't that reputable. And uh, I think a lot of people kind of took solace in some of the numbers coming out there. But look, I think, I think the bigger issue is that, look, 2020, there was a systemic undercounting of, of, of Republican and Trump voters. 
some pollsters adjusted for that. I think others it was a little uncertain on what they were doing to accomplish that. kind of, and there's also a debate even whether that was even a problem in the first place. So there was there was sort of a muddle in the polling universe on how to how, how to compensate for the polling mistakes in 2020. Um, and I think there was an inherent and, and, and understandable mistrust that the, the polling was on the money because of all the problems two years ago. It turns out I think the polling, at least the, again the reputable pollsters, did a pretty good job. But it was also understandable that you you didn't have the same degree of trust in those polls because of what happened in 2020. But yes, of course, I understand that it is hard to choose between you know the reputable and the and the unreputable because uh, you know there are these 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 moments where people get something right, but usually the real clear politics average kind of, you know, muddles that out, you know, because it marginalizes the extreme pollsters on either side. And even that didn't work this time. I mean, I wasn't looking at what Fox News was telling me or what the New York Post was telling me. I was looking at what, you know, Axios and National Journal and the Cook Political Report were telling me, and they were telling me there's going to be a bloodbath. Well, look, I mean, I mean, the final NBC poll that came out right before the election had essentially a tie on the generic ballot. And, you know, it showed that all, all the fundamental factors for Biden, for the Democrats in power were not good. But there were signs, and especially in the Senate, the Senate polls were, were actually quite close. Um, my, my line, before, I, I thought the wave was going to be predominantly in the House. I expected a lot more Republican House pickups. But I was very uncertain about the Senate forecast because the good pollsters were, were showing Democrats with leads in some of these close races. At the very least, it was statistically tied in a whole bunch of the most competitive contests. So, you know, my, my, my thinking going in was that, the, you know, I thought Republicans had a path to the getting that one seat, but it was harder to see a wave in the Senate. But, I, you know, the, ha- the House polling is, is, is a whole different ballgame because the, the best polling is done by the party committees, by the super PACs behind the scenes, stuff that I talk, talk to strategists about on a regular basis, but they're not publicly out there and it's harder to vet some of the stuff. So it's, it's, it's more, be- well, you know, one of the things that, that, that actually surprised me is that Republicans spent um, record amounts of money in these very blue districts, which to me suggested, and I heard directly that their polling was, the Republican polling was, was very encouraging in a way that didn't show up on election night for the House. Anyway, the polling is a very complicated subject. It feels like, you know, if you get too cocky one, one election that your polling was right, then you'll find out that your polling was not, not on, on top of things the next election. And it's just hard to survey voters. It used to be you'd call, call a landline and people were at home and take, take the five minutes to answer, answer a call. Younger voters aren't answering, you know, spam calls on their, on their cell phones. People, um, you know, trying to find out novel ways to reach voters aside from calling them on the phone. But it's, it's just really hard to get, get that representative sample in a way that wasn't as challenging as 10, 15 years ago. So talk to us about the runoff in Georgia. It looks like it's headed to a runoff. What's going to happen? Is, is Walker going to be uh, struggling without Kemp on the top of the ballot? Trump may announce his presidential bid next week, as early as next week. Give us a preview of what you think is going to unfold there. Yeah, I, I, I think some of it depends on what happens in Nevada and Arizona, especially Nevada. Uh, if, if this is a battle for the majority, which it could be, if, 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 if Black Salt wins in Nevada and, the, and, and Arizona goes, goes to the Democrats, it, it would be the decisive state. It would be the decisive state again that Here we are decides. Again. And millions and millions and millions of dollars are going to be poured into Georgia once again. Deja vu. You know, I, I'm I, it's, it's only been two years since we had the same situation uh, taking place. I, I think that would favor. Well, I, I think that would give Walker a fighting chance because Republican. He's down by about a point, but that would allow Republicans to remobilize and engage, spend money, 
And there's a chance that libertarian vote could end up going more Republican and help Walker get across the finish line. But if it's, if it's not the uh, 50th seat or 51st seat, I guess, for the Republicans, then, you know, I, I got to think Warnock has the advantage because I'm not sure as much Republican money would, would, would go into this race. And even if it did, I, I just think that Walker's deficiencies as a candidate and the fact that he's, you know, down by a point already, it's just, it's just going to be hard to motivate Republican voters like what we saw two years ago. Uh, we're, we're, and we haven't even talked about Trump and what he, he's going to end up doing in, in this situation. So, you know, I think Republican chances are better if it's, if it's a battle for the, you know, 51st seat for the majority. If it's not, uh, and Warnock has the edge already by about a point, you know, I think I'd give Warnock the, the edge if, it, if the stakes are a little lower. Okay, so I have an exit question, which is a bigger question, but I have a quick technical question as well. It's not technical, I'm lying. It's a crystal ball question. So what do you think is actually going to happen in Arizona? Arizona is one of the most impossible uh, states to, to kind of anticipate, as we learned in 2020, because of the we, we now vote in partisan ways. And, and, you know, in many states, people who vote early are going to be Democrats. People who vote on the day of the election are Republicans. Arizona has this like weird category with these votes that are most of these votes that are going to be counted in the coming days are people, I believe, that voted on Election Day, but they voted at a drop box. So it's kind of a hybrid category between the two like partisan ways of voting. <laughs> so, you know, in, in 2020, those voters swung to Trump. So I, I do think that there's going to be a lot of Republican votes left. And I think that's going to like, I think Carrie Lake has to be favored in the governor's race, but we'll see. I mean, she's down slightly at this point, but I think in all the other big races, including the Senate race with Lake Masters and the Secretary of State's race, it's gotten a lot of attention. I think it's going to be very hard for the Republicans to make up the difference. Um, but again, there's a lot of vote out. We, we're kind of guessing at this point. And it used to be on election night when everyone voted on election day or many people voted on election day, you could extrapolate them. It was much easier to do analysis because you could look at how much vote is remaining in all these different counties and kind of do a back, back of the envelope uh, guess on, on where things are headed. It's really hard to do that these days because you don't know where, what you have to not just look at where the vote's coming from, but how, you know, people voted and what, what, what you know, how that breaks down in the remaining vote. So Arizona, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too confident about any prediction, but, I would say Lake has a slight edge and Kelly and and the Democratic Secretary of State nominee uh, do as well. Okay, now my big, big exit question. So do you think that Trump will go quietly into that good night? Uh... (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I mean, this is, look, this is the the dilemma that's frustrated. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the easiest question you've asked. I mean, no, Trump is going to create headaches and misery and, and, and problems. And it's going to take leadership. It's going to take someone who can actually challenge him and actually win the affections of, of some of the MAGA base uh, looking forward. And that's why DeSantis gets so much attention, because I don't I, I don't think it's going to be an established. It's not going to be someone who is viewed as, a, you know, viewed as not Trumpy enough. But if you have someone like DeSantis who appeals to a lot of the same voters that Trump does um, and actually is a winner and actually is a forward looking governor, um, that that is the, that is the ticket. That's why there's so much excitement to around DeSantis and not so much around a lot of these other Republicans thinking about running. Can DeSantis beat him? I, I think so. I mean, look, I, I, I'll say two things. I think it's foolish to underestimate Trump. Trump has, if you look at the polling, Trump, actually, if you look at the polling, DeSantis is already leading Trump among college-educated Republicans, but he's getting crushed against Trump with, with sort of the, the blue-collar part of, part of the party, the working-class uh, Republicans, uh, the newer, newer Republicans who came to the party because of Trump. You know, the big question is, like, are those people, like, just learning about DeSantis? Are they kind of, did they know who Trump is? They may not be as aware about Governor DeSantis. 
is that a lagging indicator? And if, that, if that's the case, then DeSantis is a really good shot at winning the nomination against Trump. But if, 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 if Trump really maintains the hold he, he's shown among that 35, 30, 35% of the Republican electorate, um, and he's also facing, by the way, it looks like a lot of Republicans other than DeSantis are going to, going to run. Mike Pence, maybe Glenn Youngkin. Uh, if that, if that, you know, um, if that part of the coalition divides itself like it did in 2016, you know, you could easily see Trump being able to prevail and just, you know, and, and, and do what he did just four years ago. So, you know, I, I think there's signs of his base softening. I think DeSantis is a very viable alternative, but there's also the collective action problem where Republicans, the one Republican party leader that can tell a lot of these candidates what to do and how to behave. So if it was a one-on-one matchup, uh, you know, I, I see how DeSantis could, could do quite well. Um, but if it's a crowded field and, and Trump decides to go nuclear against DeSantis and, you know, you can, you can kind of see how Trump also maintains his hold on the party. Josh, we know how tired you are because I'm sitting here looking at Mark, and he really <laughs> looks tired as well. So thank you for making time for us. You're always such a good and neutral, I think, and incisive analyst. There's so few of those this day and age. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Danny. Okay, take care. So... I think what Josh said about Florida is is really interesting, that DeSantis, uh, unlike the rest of the Republican Party, he not only won overwhelmingly, but he expanded the Republican coalition. He did what Trump never did in his second run for office, which is win over people who didn't vote for him the first time. Donald Trump's great failing in his presidency was that right before the 2020 election in, in October 2020, Gallup did a poll. They do it every presidential election. They said, are you better off now than you were four years ago, ever since Ronald Reagan asked that famous question? And 56 percent of Americans said they were better off in the midst of the worst pandemic in, in, since 1918, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst racial unrest since the 1960s. That was a record. Nobody had, No one had ever scored higher. And yet 56 percent of Americans didn't vote for Donald Trump. Why is that? It's because he alienated people who liked Trump's policies, who liked what he was doing, didn't like him. And they were alienated. And he drew, instead of doing what most successful presidents do, which is bring people in who didn't vote for you the first time and make their lives better and then say, give me a second chance, he drove those people away. But that's Ron what DeSantis I keep, did the opposite. Right. But that's what I keep saying. That is Donald Trump's greatest flaw is that it is just all about him. It's actually not about the people who vote for him it is all about him and and i i think it is a a fatal and a terrible flaw i so my one fear is this you know i've looked at ron DeSantis's record in the house uh, okay now admittedly it's hard to be an influential house member and he wasn't um he didn't do a lot of interesting things he didn't do a lot of important things he voted very consistently with president trump when he was in the house since uh becoming governor of florida he really has had a sterling record but the reality is i don't know a lot about ron DeSantis outside of the issues that he has chosen to govern on i really appreciate those i think those are great i appreciate his attitude i love the fact that he broadened his coalition i love the fact that he has made the Republican Party, a much more diverse party in a place like Florida, which is already a very diverse state. Those are things that really, really matter for the future of the party because the country is not becoming more, you know, white. The country is becoming more diverse. Awesome for us. That's, you know, that is our history, as you say. We're all boat people. But, but what does he stand for on foreign policy? I've got no idea. 
Where is he on defense? I've got no idea. Where is he on a variety of these other issues? I don't know. And what I want for the next few months is I want the opportunity to get to know him better so that I don't repose all my hope in somebody <laughs> like I did with, with, you know, an awesome guy like Scott Walker who ended up being a terrible campaigner. You know, I, I, I want to not repose all my hope in somebody and then have them disappoint me. And guys, believe me, when I say it's all about Donald Trump, no, no, it's really all about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, I mean, what I've seen a little bit of his views on foreign policy, and they're pretty good from what I've seen, but I want to dig deeper. But that's true of any candidate that we ever, uh, you know, whenever you have a governor who, who runs for president, we don't know a lot about nope, the foreign true policy about like Youngkin that, as so, well. we'll, so we'll learn that. But what he does have, which which Trump didn't have, he's got all the counterpunching that Trump had, going after Disney, sending the the plane to Martha's Vineyard, all of the rest of that. But he has two things that Trump didn't have. He's a if you watch, I watched his debate from beginning to end with Charlie Crist. He he's is a substance. He is a policy wonk. Yeah. He knows the numbers. He knows the details, and he has a record of conservative reform in the state. And the other thing he has is he has the switch that he can flip that Trump didn't have in a crisis, which is that when that hurricane hit. He was he was not getting into fights with reporters and talking about his ratings. He became the epitome of a commander in chief in a crisis. Uh, he and he worked with Biden, even though he was a, cr- a critic of he Biden. He welcomed Biden and to the compare, state, didn't take sheep shots. You, you compare his hurricane briefings. And by the way, there's another hurricane hitting right now and he's doing it again. You compare his hurricane briefings to Trump's COVID briefings and you see everything you need to see. So I'm very open to him. I want to learn more about the foreign policy. But I think what we saw, the, the number one lesson from this whole election day is that we saw the path to defeat and we saw the path to victory. And the path to victory is in Florida. And I mean, in Tallahassee, not Mar-a-Lago. Amen to that. Thank you very much, folks, for listening. We came one day late this week. We will be back on our regular schedule next week, and we appreciate your patience and your loyalty. Take care. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.